Um, have you ever witnessed something in life so stunning that it just kind of left you numb? Um, you know, there, there are time and there are events that we see things and it almost leaves you gasping for a breath to respond. Have you ever, have you ever witnessed or heard or seen something like that? For me, it was on September 11th, 2001. I had left my house and Upon leaving my house and coming to the church, the first plane had flown into the World Trade Center, oblivious to me. I had just got up and left to work. It's another day. And so as I arrived at the church, I come in and I get about a 13-second debriefing as um, someone's frantically plugging in a television. And it's all fuzzy, and, and, I, and I, I kind of get bits and pieces of the World Trade Center. Somebody flew a plane, and then all of a sudden, right as the picture comes on, I see the second one, I mean, come right out of the side of the, 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 the monitor and hit it. And I'm, I mean, I was just stunned. I mean, do you remember? You just sat there looking at it and there, there was just nothing to say. You know? I mean, we all, you felt it was just gut wrenching, but there was nothing to say. Um, and I, and, and I tell you that tonight because it's the only response that I had to this text. Um, the first initial response to Jesus on the cross saying, why have you forsaken me, is shocking. It's numbing. Um, it, it, you can't just read that and then just keep going on. In the t- you can't. Um, it, it demands that you pause and be affected by it. That will be our text uh, for this evening. A lot of you I know have bought the F.F. Bruce book. The hard sayings of Jesus. The first sentence of this one is, this is the hardest of all the hard sayings. Um, and the reason why is it's so hard to even attempt to grasp what's going on. I mean, it's one of those things intellectually that we get, but then it's like, if I understand this rightly, it means this. Um, and that's what we're going to look at. Let's examine it together. We're in Mark 15. Verse 33. Mark 15, uh, I think you know the context. It's the crucifixion. Um, Jesus has been beaten probably beyond recognition. Uh, he's been up all night going from hearing to hearing. Um, I think that you know the context with great sobriety. 1533, Mark chapter 15, verse 33. Let's look at God's Word. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabbatani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, Listen, he's calling Elijah. One man ran and filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone, and let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard this cry, And saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son 
of God. Let's pray together before we look at this. Heavenly Father, we are humbled by your word. Um, We are humbled at opening it, period, but especially as we come to something like this, to the possibility of the Son being forsaken. And we pray this evening, as always, that you would give us great grace as we come before your word, that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that are molded by what your word says. Do this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me articulate exactly what we're looking at again. I mean, of course, we're going to look at the whole text, but the hard saying is, why have you forsaken me? And Charles Spurgeon breaks this down word for word, which I want to do with you briefly before we begin. Why? What is the reasoning behind this? What is the cause for this? Have would be something that is being presently experienced. Why is this happening? The you is Peter or Judas, maybe. I mean, the other ten by this point, everyone has fled. Everyone has abandoned Christ. And we might look at it and say, understandably, but you. He even says, my God, my God, my Father. Why is this happening? Why are you? Forsaken, a synonym would be to abandon or to leave. And then me, the son, the innocent, God incarnate, who is sinless. Before we jump in, Spurgeon declares this. There, friends, I have done my best, but I seem to myself have been prattling like a little child, writing of something infinitely above me. If that's what Spurgeon says... Um, we should move into this with great, great, great humility. Um, And with that, let's do so. This is a hard thing to put in a sermonic form. Um, This is the best that I could do. We're going to look at the fact. Was he or wasn't he forsaken? We're going to look at the reason, if he was. And then we're going to look at what its effect is for us, if this is what happened. So let's begin with the fact. Was Jesus really forsaken? He cries out at the sixth hour as darkness comes over the land. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We've got to start out in verse 33 with the mystery. Um, Was this literal? Yes. Over that region, was there literally darkness at noon? Yes. But it's bigger than that. Um, You know throughout Scripture, darkness always symbolizes judgment. It gives us a great picture as to the context of what's going on. And then we see in verse 34, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you left me? Why have you abandoned me? And guys, there's only two options. The Father is abandoning Jesus, and it's why he's saying this. Or this is some kind of poetic literary phrase that a a minority of people hold to, but there still are that do. Notice closely in verse 34. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is in quotations. Jesus is quoting something, which is the key to our understanding of this text. Keep your hand here, because we're nowhere near finished with it. Look at Psalm 22. Psalm 22. Verse 1. 
for the director of music to the tune of the Doe of the Morning, a Psalm of David. And let me turn your attention to the first line. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, I want you to see three other verses in the psalm. Look at 14, 16, and 18. 14. I am poured out like water, and all of my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. Look at 16. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and feet. And then 18. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Now, surely David, under the inspiration of the Spirit, I would venture to guess, had to have written these things and stood back kind of amazed. God has never forsaken David. David's hands and feet were never pierced. No one ever sold David's clothes and cast lots for him. Now, there's some things in this text that did have to do with David, and that's right. But the thrust of this text is a prophetic text. This is a prophetic psalm, a prophetic messianic psalm, actually. It's a psalm that's going to reach its fulfillment in the Savior. It's not about David. This psalm is about Christ. This psalm has its ultimate consummation in the crucifixion. Listen to what John Calvin says about this, and this, this did it for me. Studying did it really or did it not happen? Jesus expressed this horror of great darkness, this God-forsakenness, by quoting the only verse of Scripture which actually described it and which he had perfectly fulfilled. That's amazing. Jesus is quoting Psalm 22.1a, because it's the only thing that experiences what he's going through. But B, because he's conscious and knows he's fulfilling Psalm 22. He is literally being forsaken by the Father. He is mourning the absence of his Father. The Father has turned his face away from the crucified Christ. That's what the text says. And there, there are... I would go as far as to say it's factual. I mean, you, you pile up the guys on the right and left who agree and disagree, and all your heroes are here. And I thought about this in my office, and I gripped with what it meant, and I said, am I prepared to accept this? Am I prepared to accept something that appears to be fact that I so don't want to accept? Has anybody seen the movie um, Grizzly Man? You've seen it. All right, there's a guy, if you've never seen Grizzly, let me, I'll give you a brief synopsis. There's a guy named Timothy Treadwell, and the whole movie's about him. He's a grizzly bear activist. He has devoted his life to grizzly bears. And he'd actually spent 13 summers living in a national forest in Alaska with the grizzly bears. And the movie is his actual documentary and footage. And he started an organization called Grizzly People, and the whole point is... They're going to save the grizzly bears from poachers in Alaska, which nobody's poaching them. But anyway, that was the point. And and I'm not making light of of this. This is not funny. It's ironic, but it's not funny. And there's a difference. He went on David Letterman in 2003 and said, Grizzly bears are completely harmless party animals. 
what he said. In October of 2003, he and his girlfriend were found mauled to death and eaten by a grizzly bear in the National Park of Alaska. Now, friends, would any of you say that grizzly bears are happy party animals in light of the fact that there's factual proof that they maul and eat people? Seriously. I mean, you might want to think, oh, they're not really that harmless. They are. They kill and eat people, even people that have lived with them for 13 years and have named them. You don't want to accept that, but you must. Guys, the Son was forsaken by the Father. And every fiber of our being doesn't want to accept that, but the text demands that you must. And the question is, how do we respond? I think we'll respond more fully in a minute, but let me give you, there was one glimmer of hope. As I sat in my office at this point and thought, what is good in this? Let me tell you what somebody said. This is, I would have never thought this. This is genius. This utterance from the cross is one of the few absolutely credible texts which might be used as a foundational pillar for a truly scientific life of Jesus on the ground that it could not have been a product of the worship of Jesus in the early church. You know what he's saying? Nobody would have made that up. If you're going to fake everything and you're going to fake the resurrection and you know, and you're going to fake all this stuff, great. But who would fake their Savior on the cross saying to the Father, why have you forsaken me? That doesn't fit. That doesn't, that doesn't benefit them at all. That doesn't help your claims. It would make no sense to fabricate this. The reason why it's here under the guidance of the Holy Spirit is because it's recorded as it happened. It's a reproduction of the what this is what happened. As outlandish as it might seem. So we've got to begin agreeing on that. Jesus, our Lord, was forsaken by God the Father. Number two, why? What is the reasoning behind Jesus being forsaken by the Father? Look at verse 37. can use this as a springboard to explain why. With a loud cry... Jesus breathed his last. And most think the loud cry would be, in your hands I commit my spirit, or it is finished, depending on the, the way that you locate the two of those. So we know what the utterance is. The question is, what leads up to Jesus saying such? Last time I'm going to have you flip, because I hate to have you flip everywhere. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse twenty-one. <clears throat> God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's your reason. Why the forsakenness? Because you are seeing a picture of what it would have looked like for our sin to come into contact with the holiness of God. You are seeing what it would look like for your sin to come in contact with the holy justice of the Father. This is what happens. It cannot 
and will not be tolerated. His forsaken is, is the result of our sin. Our sin that's laid upon Him. And in verses 34 and 37, we get a glimpse into what substitution really looked like. Why have you forsaken me? And Jesus breathed his last. And it's at that moment, Jesus is receiving what you and I should have received because of our sin. Because he has been made sin for us, he is being treated as if he were guilty. He's the sacrifice. He is the surety of the covenant. There's there's no other way. Therefore, he must be treated as a sinner. And the reason is the holiness of God. No fellowship with sin whatsoever. Thus, the perfect sinless sacrifice becomes the substitute. And we've got to view it and say, there's, there's no other way than the innocent taking the place of the guilty. I figure that most of you probably watched Narnia. If you haven't, go rent it. Um, great, great, great movie. And there's a scene, I had to go and watch it to get it right. You know, you've watched the whole thing and... They've moved around the greatest line of the movie when they're at the beaver's house and they're asking about Aslan and, you know, the Mr. and Mrs. Beaver says, Lucy says, is he, is he good or is he safe? And she says, no, he's not safe. He's a lion, but he's good. And so then you've got that suspense built up of, ooh, he's not safe and now we know he's a lion. You know, they move that to the end. But anyway, the whole movie you've heard about Aslan, Aslan, Aslan. And, you know, finally there's that scene. They make their way to where the king is and, they're walking down and everybody, and they walk up to the guy that's half man and half whatever and horse, and they say, we're here to see Aslan, and everybody hits the deck. You know, you hear all the armor in the background, and everybody knows what to do because Aslan's about to come out. And then you've got that scene where the, the, the tent opens, and here he comes. You know, and it's just like, bang. It just It's such a huge moment in the film. You see this big, strong lion. And he's so broad, and his head's kind of up in the breeze, and it's like, wow. I mean, that's about as good a picture of the line of Judah as we're going to get. I mean, it was well done. And then, as you know, they go and they kidnap Edmund, and they bring him back. And now the, the, the wicked witch comes, or that's the story of us. Now the white witch comes because she has a claim on his blood. And so they go in the tent, and they meet, and they come back out, and she kind of looks at him and walks off. And he says she has renounced her claim on his blood. Remember that? And everybody cheers and it's great and yay and Edmund. But none of them get what just happened. She ren- Oh, and then the best part of the movie is when she turns around and says, how do I know that you're going to keep your promise? And he just roars. Uh, it's glorious. Um, but nobody knows. Everybody thinks it's great. Edmund's going to go free. And nobody knows that. The reason why the guilty traitor is going to go free is because the innocent's about to go to the stone table and die. That was the bargain. There's no other way. That was the reason for the substitution. That whole scene, which I, I get chills every time I watch it, because it's about us. Edmund represents us. Aslan represents Christ. And it's all right except for there's, there's one thing that's wrong. You, and my, you, and, you and, and my sin debt was not paid to the white witch. The white witch never had a claim on our blood. You and I were saved from the justice and the wrath of the Father. 
That changes everything. I can't remember who said this quote. It's one of my favorite. I should know. We are saved by God from God. You're not saved from Satan. You are saved by God from God Himself. Guys, shouldn't understanding this rightly produce with us an immense love for Christ? As we view and we attempt to understand the way that He loves us, in so much that He gave His life for us, knowing that He will be crucified, knowing that He will be beaten, and ultimately knowing that He will be forsaken by the Father. I don't understand how we can get a glimpse of that and not be propelled to love Him more. I, it doesn't make, does it make sense to you? It doesn't to me either. That's the cause to satisfy the justice and to subside the wrath of the Father. Let's end with the result. So what does it mean? Jesus was forsaken, caused by our sin, and against God's holiness. But what's the result? And it's found in verses 37 to 38. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So the result of Jesus' being forsaken is death, ultimately. And as a result of his death, the curtain is torn. Now, this is one of those things that we would just read by and be like, oh, well, that's, the curtain was torn. That is a big deal. Like, huge. A, the curtain was huge. Located in the temple from top to bottom. No human hands could have ripped it in two. Couldn't have been done. The big picture is what it symbolizes. The curtain separates the presence of God from man only to be entered once a year by the high priest. Anybody that goes in will die. And it's really interesting if you remember from Leviticus, I think it's in Leviticus, when you got the priestly garment and they got to wear um, bells all around the bottom and then a rope around the waist. You know why? In case he went in and didn't come out. So that you wouldn't have to go in and die. You could just pull the rope and, well, you hate it, but, you know, at least it's just one. That was serious. You didn't go behind the curtain. Until now. There's no longer a barrier between God and His people because Christ has paid their sin debt. It's glorious. There's no longer a hindrance. It also implies acceptance for us by the way of the Father because of the merit of Christ. The barrier has been removed. The sinner now has access to the holiness of God through the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ, because he was treated as a sinner, we can be treated as the sinless. There's a song, it's, it's really funny. I had it in my head and through our walls over here, I heard Johnny playing it the other day. We might be seeing it in the near, near future, I don't know. Um, and I'll confess, I'm not a big fan, fan of contemporary hymnology, because so much of it is repetition about this deep. Uh, but some of it's good. Anything that we sing here, James Montgomery Boyce is good. This guy didn't write down the name, but he also wrote In Christ Alone, the one that Andrew Bryant sings all the time that is amazing. Listen, this is the contemporary song or contemporary worship, I guess they would call it. How Deep the Father's Love for Us, a contemporary hymn. Just let me read you a verse because this summarizes the effect of the forsakenness. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he would give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. That's 
that's great lyrics. It gets better. How deep the pain of searing loss. The father turns his face away. While wounds that mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. That's the result. The result of Christ being forsaken is that the father brings many sons and daughters to glory through his son. And because he was forsaken, and because it's finished, you and I have no fear of ever being forsaken. Because if the Father can forsake you, then it wasn't finished. And it was. We'll close this way. From looking at the text and looking at the original audience, you know, we're all really one of two people in the text. Some of us, or more like those we find in verse 35 and 36. And to really get the flavor of this, we've got to read verse 32. He saved others. He can't save himself. Let this Christ, this King of the Jews, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who crucified with him also heap insults. So, oh, he's calling Elijah. Somebody get a sponge and keep him alive a little bit longer and let's see if Elijah comes. That's what's going on. Some commentators believe Eli, Eli, that's close to Elijah. Maybe the vast majority say this is a continuation of the mockery. Oh, you want Elijah? Give him something to keep him alive a little bit longer, and let's see if Elijah comes. I think some of you might sit there tonight and think, yeah, where is he? 2,000 years later, and a dead Messiah, what's the point? What's the difference? Does it even matter? Does it even... Why do we care? And my question to you, A, would be, I'm glad you're here. But I would ask you a couple of questions out of all fairness. What do you do with these words? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What do you do with these words? What do you do with these words as you see the inflexibility of the holiness of God at sin? So much so that he doesn't exempt his son as he bears our sin. How do you hear the gospel over and over and over and think that you're safe? When you see that even his son as he stands in our place isn't safe. You tell me why the authors of scripture would fabricate such a saying. How does it benefit the church? Why would the centurion confess, surely this is the Son of God? This man has seen the whole event. He's in charge of the whole company of all the Roman soldiers. He was in charge of, if not himself, did the beating. He was in charge of, if not himself, the crucifixion. And this man sees the whole event and says, surely this is the Son of God. He's got nothing to gain from that. Here's my question to you tonight. Why do you continually run from the truth that can save you? You're the only one that can answer that. Why do you continually run from this gospel that alone can save you? From this Christ that alone can be your substitute? You tell me. You must come to Christ. And for the rest of you, you would be more like the centurion. 
He's been with Christ all day. He's witnessed the whole event. And then he confesses in verse 39. Is that, is that you? Do you confess this Christ as Lord? We're not told anything else about him. This is it. We sing in a hymn here presently, Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me Savior, or I die. I wonder how many times we sing it and it just... I mean, really think about what you're saying. Has Christ not washed us from our sin, we too would be forsaken by the Father. How do we respond to that? I don't know what else can come from our hearts, but hallelujah, what a Savior. What else does an understanding of Christ being forsaken by His Father produce within you? I don't know. But hallelujah, what a Savior. Closes up. Heavenly Father, we thank You indeed that Your justice on our behalf, our sins, offenses at Your holiness were satisfied in the life, death, and resurrection Christ. We bless You for that. Jesus, we thank You for Your righteousness and Your obedience and Your faith even to exclaim, My God, my God, in the midst of this, never wavering. We bless You. Lord, we pray for those who are in our midst who know not of Your saving benefits yet, that indeed these matters would be probing to their hearts. Why is it recorded here? What does it mean? Pray that you would bring them into yourselves. Lord, we also pray for our own hearts. Let them not become callous and hardened toward the beauty of your gospel. Let us never glaze with our eyes over these pages and these words and not be moved by them. We bless you for what you endured on our behalf. And that glory is ours to inherit because you are forsaken. May your words minister great grace to our heart this evening through the Spirit. In whose name we pray. Amen.